When we talk about terrorism, one aspect that has gotten some attention, but in some ways not enough, is what is the role of communities in identifying people that may, in fact, down the road commit acts of violent extremism? Hi, I'm Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcasts about national security, and in this case, terrorism. You all know that I worked in security intelligence for more than three decades. I also spent 18 months with the Canadian government's Department of Public Safety National Security Directorate. And one of my functions was to go across Canada and talk to communities, not just Muslim, but all kinds of communities, about terrorism, about radicalization, and about what we were doing about it. And as you can probably appreciate, this is a a very, very sensitive topic. Uh, A lot of people's dander got up over the terminology that was being used. And many people felt that this was a role the Canadian government should not be playing. We should not be having this conversation because it led to things like, you know, racist feelings and Islamophobia. As a consequence, the whole field of of what's called CVE or or countering violent extremism seems to be kind of in a a bit of an an upheaval now. We're not quite sure what the term means. We're not quite sure uh, whether it works or not. And so to, to weigh in on this conversation, I have brought in a, a UK colleague of mine, Ahmed Patel. He's a member of Parents for Peace, which is an organization that looks to you know, talk about these difficult issues of terrorism. And he's joining me on the line today from the UK. So Ahmed, thanks for taking the time. Uh, hi, thank you for having me, Phil. One of the things that I, I found most fascinating about your, your case, Ahmed, was that uh, your sister's husband, a man called Mohammed Sadiqi Khan, was one of the 7-7 bombers back in 2005. This, is, of course, was a, a catastrophic a, a terrorist attack on the London London subway, uh, which killed, I believe, 51 people, and, and a bus was bombed as well. Mm-hmm. When you realize that your sister's husband mm-hmm. was an Islamist terrorist, what, what, what did that do to you when you found that information out? Well, initially on the 12th of July, when we were actually told that... Uh, he was one of the, the perpetrators. Obviously, the security services came to our house with uh, my family. Um, no no family member was arrested around that time. Um, they, it, it was very hard to actually accept, simply because, obviously, human psychology, you, you cannot just accept that a person that you know is a terrorist. I mean, yeah, if somebody had come and said, oh, he's died in an accident, or maybe he's committed some some road rage incident you can accept that so it, it was hard to accept simply because there were no sign um but then obviously as the officers kept on coming and uh, we were liaising with them and they were also concerned about our security as well they were very professional very polite then certain information came out uh, which we obviously then had to accept and then later on the videos it was a uh, it was something like i say it was like a huge rock has landed on your head and you mm-hmm. just you, there's, there's no there's no guidebook anywhere. There's nothing mm-hmm. anywhere out there that can prepare you for something like that. So I had to then deal with it, the situation, my family and everything, and then the local people completely on my own. And, it, and um, obviously we'll go into how I was treated by people. It's shocking, absolutely shocking. As you say, you know, we all deal with, with tragedy in our own ways, and we do get those phone calls where you, a loved one has died in a car accident or worst case scenario and some kind of act of violence. But but to have the, the security service knock on your door and say, oh, by the way, uh, yeah. your sisters, your brother-in-law uh, yeah. was part of a, a cell that, that killed 51 people. I, it's, it's hard for me to imagine how you wrap your brain around that, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and, then, and then to be actually told later on, 
is that not only was he one of the perpetrators, but he was the mastermind. I mean, right. that's just so. I mean, then to then to deal with people after that as well, to deal with that, and then to deal with community and people, mosques and people you've known all your life. It's it, it's just a, a shocking story. I've I've shocked people with previous interviews. I've shocked people. Shocking. Now, I, I don't want to to push this too much, Hashmi, sure. but did sure. people then say, "Well, gee, if your brother-in-law"? was capable of this, does this mean that you knew something about it or you were somehow aware of his radicalization of violence? Did people start looking at you in a suspicious way? There were rumors. I think rumors did a lot more harm than facts and evidence because the security services, like I said, nobody was arrested and we were at home and we were told that, oh, you are free to come and go as you please. So this is why I appreciate how the law works with evidence um, and I, I do appreciate how the security services worked, but yes, rumors, rumors, and media were were more damaging than the actual investigation itself. Now, you have taken this situation, which again, I, I find it really hard to imagine. I, I guess, in, in my case, having worked in counterterrorism, where the police came to me and said, "Oh, by the way, you know, one a member of your family has been involved in this." I'm not sure what I would do, but you decided to take this tragedy and this tragedy that affected you personally and your family and actually do something about it. You got involved with Parents for Peace. You also got involved with having this conversation about radicalization to violence, about terrorism. Can you walk us through how that began and and why is it you decided? I mean, I I could just imagine that others would just say, I want to get as far away from this as possible. You decided to actually get quite involved in it. Why was that? Um, I mean, there there are a few reasons. I mean, first of all, I I engaged on Muslim forums where I was dealt with very badly, I tried to talk to imams, most Muslim groups across the UK. Once again, I was dealt with very badly. There was, uh, I was basically told, oh, it's your problem, it's your family's problem. I said, no, listen, hang on, this is our problem. It's a Muslim problem. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and it's going to, and I said, listen, I think because of Anjum Chaudhry, we're going way back in London. I goes, right. look, we know that there's, we know that there's this undertone, dark undertone that had now come to the surface. So there is a problem. So I was met with a lot of, a denial, insults, um, no, we don't want anything to do with you. Even mosques were hinting that they don't want me around. My my own wow. children my own children were bullied by Muslims. Um, so it, it is a huge, huge, huge story. Um, and then I, I went online, uh, Muslim forums once again. Oh, uh, the answer I always got was, what about Iraq? What about this? I goes, no, look, we let's talk about this. Let's not talk about foreign affairs, foreign policy. Let's not go into what about ism and victimhood. Let's talk mm-hmm. about this that has happened, Muslims for our own country, um, and then what, potentially how many people uh, are there like that. And now, unfortunately, as we found over the years, there have been more. Now, you, you raise an interesting point, Ahmed, and, I, and I've seen this as well, that there's a reluctance to address these issues because they feel they don't want the attention of society on them. There obviously are people both in the United Kingdom and, and in Canada, United States, who are, let's face it, they are, you know, they're anti-Muslim racist. They're Islamophobic for a whole host of reasons. And, you know, many people said, well, Islam is somehow the problem here. Like Islam is inherently a violent faith. So I can understand why some people in the community are, are sick and tired of having to apologize or account for this spate of terrorism in Western society over the past 30 to 50 years. But why do you think it was that people were not willing to say, hmm, let's take a look at what's happening in our communities with our young people? Was it this, was it, was it so overwhelming that they were just 
they didn't have enough energy or time left to do an introspective look as to what was actually happening and what should we do about it? Yes, um, actually, right. I mean, a lot of it is to do with just feeling intimidated, uh, the, the siege mentality, or, you know, okay, so if we talk about this problem, then it will legitimize the far right. I said, look, we know this happened. This is a fact. We know about Antunctoni. We know about other uh, previous smaller cases. Um, and in, to avoid any further, you know, case like this, or obviously now as we've seen stabbings, driving over people, and things like that, let's let's go let's go around the country. Let's go around. I mean, I I put myself out there to mosques, Muslim organizations, um, as many people as I could. And I was completely ignored simply because, yeah, there was, I mean, some of it is cowardice. Some of it is, some of it is just a reluctance to discuss the subject. Um, and, I, and I mean, once again, it's a very difficult subject to, to put across my experiences. But yes, denial. And no, we don't want to talk about it. Um, and then what about, oh, well, yeah, uh, if we talk about it, then the mm-hmm. far right will be uh, emboldened. You mentioned how, you know, on many occasions, the, the foreign policy or, you know, what our countries are doing in X, Y or Z part of the world is often brought as well. That's why it's happening. You know, if France didn't have the colonies in Algeria, you wouldn't have Algerian terrorism. If the United Kingdom didn't get involved in Afghanistan in the 1870s, you wouldn't have this kind of thing. In your experience, was there a fear factor as well in the sense that were some of the people that were radicalizing openly using this kind of language did they intimidate, you think, Muslim leaders, including imams, to not talk about this? I think the majority of the Muslim community in the UK, with it being kind of traditional, initially thought that this was a fringe element. Uh, so, the, so the term Salafi, Salafi, Takfiri were used. So they thought that, well, this is not going to reach mainstream Islam and Muslims, you know, and let's, uh, let's I mean, the whole Salafi Takfiri debate within Islam has been ongoing for years as well. Right. But then, unfortunately, we had more what we might call mainstream Muslims get involved. And I said, look, here you go, you know, because and I give the example of a, of a drug dealer. You see a drug dealer dealing drugs over there. So you think that, well, he's dealing over there, right? And yes, uh, that, that element of intimidation. So, oh, we don't want to go confront him because he's dealing over there. He's not dealing mm-hmm. over here. But what happened in our community is that the, the drug dealer or the terrorist recruiter ended up uh, entering the mainstream. Right. Another term that I, I, I've seen that you've used is you talk about what's called the Muslim victim industry. And in that, you know, when you went out and tried to broach these subjects, You've got things like, well, you know, we're the ones who are suffering here, not the people who are the victims of the terrorist attacks. What do you mean by the Muslim victim industry and how did it manifest itself in your initial efforts to try and have these conversations across the UK? Well, well the, the Muslim victim industry is mainly from my uh, online interactions. Um, and I found a pattern uh, and the pattern from over the years. And then this includes a few more mainstream Muslims. The pattern was always... What about foreign policy? What about Muslims dying? Uh, why don't you talk about that? Why are you focusing on Muslim terrorists? But as a you know, as a, as a Sufi, which is kind of a broad term, I said, look, we, you know, first of all, we as Muslims, uh, we have no control over foreign policy. We have no control over what's happening in other countries elsewhere. What we can control, what we can do, is do things here, is to direct the focus of young Muslims. Uh, into education, into uh, being pro- you know proactive, good members of the local community here. Why? Because my brother-in-law cited foreign policy. 
Right, he, he mentioned Iraq and he said, oh, our brothers and sisters over there are suffering this and that. So I took that and I said, well, this is a major factor. This is a ma- victimhood is a major factor. So I've been tackling victimhood uh, for, for many years now that don't go into the uh, the victimhood ideology because it's a major factor. So the Muslim victim industry, why I use that broad term is because it covers many organizations, many individuals who only push that one narrative and one of their favorite words obviously uh, is going to affect Muslim is the term Islamophobia, a term right. which I which I don't like. I mean, mm-hmm. I prefer I prefer to use a term, a term you know, anti-Muslim hatred. So I, I then discussed and debated all of this online for, for quite a while. Um, and recently, even on LinkedIn, shockingly, one particular Muslim called me a self-hating Muslim who I've blocked mm-hmm. on LinkedIn. So it's it's this thing that, oh, why are you, what about us? What about us? Well, I was no, what about the Muslims who commit these crimes and this ideology? That's what we need to tackle. What can we do about foreign policy? Nothing. Right. You raise an interesting point because, of course, when you look at terrorism around the world, and, and the vast majority of attacks are not occurring in Canada or the United Kingdom, they're occurring in Afghanistan and Somalia and Nigeria and Pakistan and Iraq and Syria. And these are attacks in which Islamist extremists, which, by the way, is the correct term, despite people being pushing back against that one, Islamist terrorists are killing what? They're killing other Muslims. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of victims of acts of terrorism are not white people on the, on the London tube. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Canadians walking to work in the morning, the vast majority of victims are actually other Muslims who are killed by mm-hmm. Muslims who happen to think that their version of Islam is superior. And in fact, mm-hmm. they see the vast majority of Muslims, especially Sufis such as yourself, as, as Kufar, as people who don't mm-hmm. understand the true faith and must suffer as a result of that. Did you never get into any other acceptance or understanding by the people you spoke with that, yeah, you're right, the vast majority of victims are Muslim. And therefore, this is our problem. We have so-called Muslims killing Muslims. That is, at essence, what's happening here. Well, I think about two, three years ago now, um, I kind of stopped really bothering with uh, mosques, imams, and Muslim organizations because I had had enough. Even now, even now, believe you or not, nobody actually has contacted me, contacted me or wants anything to do with me. Um, so I, I'm now at a point where I do what I do um, and that's about it. But it's sad the amount of time and years wasted. But sometimes when I do kind of, I mean, because I'm so focused on my own work now, I don't actually know what's going on elsewhere on Twitter or elsewhere, what the conversations are. So I'm very focused on my work. But yes, I mean, I think you made a very good point. But the other point I did make... Uh, I think one of the interviews I did after the Manchester bombing with the BBC that look if if a Muslim commits an act of terror, the the, the the blowback is on us. So why don't you why aren't you out there speaking about it? But the other thing then when ISIS came along and once again, what I noticed is most of say there have been a few. Uh, uh, peaceful events here and there. It's all been reactive. It's it's after ISIS did the damage. It's after uh, approximately a thousand Muslims from the UK went to join ISIS. So it's all yes. reactive. It was all reactive. Yeah. Nothing before. And that, that's the gap that where if they had allowed me to talk uh, across the country in mosques and um, community centers, we might have been we might have been able to save save people. I think one of the uh, posts of mine you noticed is about uh, Shamima Begum. You know, I mean, yes. what were the what were the Muslim organizations and in London have been doing for twenty years? Uh, they they knew Andrew is there. They knew the uh, poison he was spreading, and in the beginning, uh, and in fact, the Muslim victim industry once again, 
uh, going back to her specific case, they blame they blame the council and the government. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's always somebody else's fault. Yeah, it's always somebody else's fault. You know, it's interesting you raise Shamima Begum. Of course, she's become quite the international character as someone who, uh, from what I've read, bragged about joining ISIS in the beginning and then has had a change of heart because she's stuck in this squalor refugee camp in northern Iraq and, and wants to come home. And, and But you're right. I, you know, and certainly in my experience, Ahmed, working in security intelligence, there are always multiple signs that somebody is adopting this 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 hateful ideology. It doesn't happen overnight. And, mm. and, you know, I, I think it's incumbent upon everyone, not just the security services, the law enforcement, to take note of, you know, what are the signs that somebody is going down that road? I mean, my very first book, The Threat from Within, was all about how do you detect radicalization to violence? Mm. And this notion that, well, it's not my responsibility. It's, you know, I have to, it's the state's fault is, again, it's it's about that whataboutism you talked about. And it's essentially yeah. a mm. deflection of the responsibility. Oh, absolutely. And this is what the Muslim victim industry does. It's always somebody else. It's always somebody else's fault. Um, less, you know, I mean, I, one of the reasons why I'm not very popular is because the Muslim imams and these organizations, when I say to them, well, here, you, there you go, now we're in this huge mess. What do you have to say? They have nothing to say. They've got nothing to come back with, you know, and they don't want to eat humble pie. They don't want to say, yeah, we were wrong, Ahmed, you were right. They don't want to do that. Right. They don't want to do that. Yeah. You st- if I may say, Ahmed, you, you strike me as, as quite pessimistic in the sense that you've made an effort over years, better part of a decade and a half, to address these issues. You've been rebuffed by the community. You've been called a self-hating Muslim. You've been accused of all kinds of things that you're probably not responsible for. D- is there any cause for, for optimism in this sense? Or have you sort of you know checked that box and moved on to other activities? Um. I mean, I, I want to use the term Alhamdulillah in the sense, and I think, mm. and, and I do want to refer to Mubin Sheikh as a, just, just for this, because I've discussed things with him. We've had very similar experiences. Mm-hmm. Now, once we moved on, and now, I mean, like, I'm going to say the word Alhamdulillah, um, praising Allah, because I'm now on a global platform. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's enough for me. Now, whether local Muslims, mosque organizations do or don't want to do, have anything to do with me, I really am not bothered. I'm not bothered. I so really am not bothered. This, this would be some of your work with Parents for Peace. So can you describe to my audience, Ahmed, what Parents for Peace is all about and what your role is in it? Well, Parents for Peace works, I think, on a kind of a more holistic level. Um, and then what I, um, I was contacted, actually, when they noticed how I brought the subject of grooming, extremism, and uh, once again, the Muslim victim industry. So I'm... Part, part of the, uh, the the organization, uh, what, what's that exact category? But we do we do have uh, discussions and we had an event and then what I do over here and what they do, they support me in the sense that obviously part of his um, legitimization, um, you know that this this person is a trusted person, he knows what he's talking about, you know we've took him on board and uh, we're, we're here to take advice from him as well because, you know, uh, Medium has a lot of good things to say about me. And uh, she's always, uh, anytime I offer my services uh, or an interview for anybody on LinkedIn, she's always willing to give me references. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to be legitimized, especially on something like this where fellow Muslims have said to me and, in, and imams, that, oh, he's a nobody. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and we both know, Ahmed, unfortunately, in what I count, call the terrorism or counter-terrorism industry, there are far too many people who, you know, portray themselves as experts in, in whatever and, and, and being the one voice to listen to. And many of them are really, 
first of all, first of all, they're not representative of anything besides themselves. And secondly, you have to question their qualifications as to why they're weighing in on this. Can you give any sort of, uh, I don't know, lessons or suggestions on how we, and I use we in a very collective sense, can, can better have this conversation, given what you've learned about the rejection you had in the United Kingdom community? Moving forward, what is it we should be doing to make this more productive, more effective? Um, I think, obviously, speaking uh, specifically on Muslim terrorism, and that's a term that we should use, is, you know, terrorism by Muslims, Muslim terrorism, whether people like it or not. Um, once again, I've said in interviews, um, consult Muslims, consult uh, relatives of people who have been through experiences. I mean, we have Mothers for Life, Parents for Peace, Christian Boudreau from Canada, Families for Life, yep. you know, ladies who have lost uh, children to ISIS because they will know the inside, the background of a son or a brother-in-law in my case or, you know, so, I mean, there are a lot of experts or so-called experts out there who, who I think I get the feeling don't like me because I, I come along. I come join, along. Join and, the club, Ahmed. Join the club. Mm, mm. I come along and I say, hang on, that's wrong. That, I mean, one of the first things I had to do when I went public and I was reading a lot of books is to correct so-called experts. I said, look, you've got that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, mm. that wrong. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, families of uh, uh, extremists, terrorists, people who have lost children to ISIS, uh, because they have an insight. They have an insight. And they can give you information that nobody can give. You know, I mean, reliance on, I think, reliance on media and reliance on other source. You know, go direct to source. Go direct to the source. Exactly. No, I, could, I couldn't I could concur with you more on that front. As somebody who, who used to work in intelligence, it was all about the accuracy of your information and trying mm. to corroborate it from multiple sources. I also want to point out, too, for my listeners who maybe aren't familiar, you talked about Mubin Sheikh. Mubin Sheikh is a mutual friend. He was also a you know, a human agent uh, in the Toronto 18 case way back in 2005, 2006. And Christiane Boudreau is the mother of Damien Claremont, mm. who was a young man from Western Canada, from Calgary, who ended up joining a terrorist group and died in a terrorist attack. Uh, I think back in 2012, I believe, is when it, when he died. Ahmed, I, I, I just want to point out that I, I'm really quite um, impressed and thankful for the things that you've tried to accomplish. I know it has not been an easy journey for you. Mm. I sincerely you know, A, want to thank you for being on this podcast today, but also to wish you every success in moving forward with Parents for Peace and for your own efforts. And um, kudos to you for, for doing this uh, in the face of some very, very strong personal criticism. Oh, I mean, even now there's no support from anybody here. Um, but like I say, you know, when when I get support from America, from Canada, from your people like yourself, from Europe, I've done interviews with Europe. I have a interview lined up with someone from Indonesia. I have an interview lined up with someone, from, someone else from America. That's it for me, you know, alhamdulillah. I'm not going to say I did it. I say Allah helped me, which is what Mumin says, you know. Right. Sorry for name dropping him, but no, no, we have no we have we have we have talked and we have we do we have had very similar experiences, very similar experiences. I just want to point yeah. out to, as as one last thing, as you know, you 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 mentioned, and I, I just looked it up myself. Uh, as we are talking, uh, within the last mm. few minutes, there's mm. been a, a a British MP, a Conservative MP named David Amos, mm. uh, has been stabbed to death. Uh, in a church on a place called Leon C. I have no idea where that is. Mm -hmm. But you said that according to your information, it's possible that the attacker was a, a young uh, British Somali. I, I've not seen that in, in the news just yet, but mm -hmm. if this turns out to be, uh, and, and the UK officials are saying they're looking into this, whether this is terrorism or not, they don't know. And this is the important mm -hmm. thing we don't know yet. We, there's lots mm -hmm. of things we don't know. Mm -hmm. This is why we have investigations. 
But if it turns out, uh, worst case scenario for the Muslim community, that this MP yep. has in fact been killed by a British Somali, so a British Muslim, mm-hmm. um, what's, what's this going to do to the dialogue that uh, that we need to have? Well, here you go once again. You know, I mean, I mean, actually, this isn't the first. The first one was Roshanara Chaudhary. Yes. 12 years ago. Yes. So, I mean, I can just imagine now what's going on, what's going on in social media with the far right and Muslims and um and that's why i'm not involved because there's a madness out there and but but i don't want to blame muslims but i you know i did say i told you so yeah i, I did say i told you so well you know unfortunately um you obviously you're preaching to the choir here mm, mm, in the course. sense that i understand yeah. this but uh, mm. you know again I, I thank you for not just appearing on the podcast but for having this conversation it is a difficult conversation mm-hmm. to have mm-hmm. but if we don't have it we don't get anywhere and and so uh uh, my my all the best Ahmed to you in your your, your future endeavors and uh, I hope to to stay in touch and maybe we can have a, another conversation in the future yes sir thank you very much Phil for actually having me yeah th- I appreciate it so that was my conversation with Ahmed Patel from the United Kingdom we, we, we talked about some pretty sensitive issues there what do you think I'd love to hear your feedback you can reach me on Twitter at Borealis Saves or on LinkedIn you can also reach me at BorealisRisk at, at gmail.com website is, is borealisthreatenrisk.com you can subscribe to all the content podcasts and blogs also pick up my latest book the peaceable kingdom the history of terrorism in canada from confederation of the present it means a lot to me to get feedback i'd love to hear from you soon until then stay safe <laughs>